morning, everyone. Um, cool, perfect. So you're all very welcome uh, to Calvary Waterford. We, um, we're going to the book of Galatians right now. So you can open there to Galatians chapter 1. So I was tempted to teach from Genesis chapter 9 and the flood, considering the weather <laughs> outside today. If you haven't seen the courtyard, it's literally a flood. Um, but no, we're going to continue on in the book of Galatians. So we started Galatians 1 last week, and we're going to be in this book um, up until maybe February of next year. I mentioned that this letter is written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christian churches in the region of Galatia, in ancient Turkey in the first century, um, t- directed at the issue of division in the church over doctrine and over ethnicity. Again, we had mentioned that the challenge in Galatia was that there is these um, Judaizers, the Bible calls them, the circumcision party, going into the churches after Paul and teaching it's not enough to have simple faith in Jesus, but we must become a Jew first. And with that, you know, for guys being circumcised, for everyone else observing the law on the Sabbath, and only then are you fit to become a Christian. It's not enough to rest on the work of Jesus. Our works matter too. And so Paul writes this letter to the Galatians to to make them realize that the gospel is enough. That, again, as we mentioned last week, when we have Jesus and nothing else, we have absolutely everything we need for salvation. And so this morning we're in verses 6 to 10. And, you know, again, having greeted the Galatians, uh, reminded them of who he was, you know, the authority he had, that he was the apostle sent from God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, that he was the apostle who was commissioned by Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, Paul begins to address them in this church. So let's read um, the first few verses together and we'll pray and we'll get into it. Galatians 1.6 says, I am astonished, or some translations say, I'm amazed, I marvel, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Again, as we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you that there is no other gospel. There is no further revelation. There is nothing else, God, that is required of us to know you, to be in a relationship with you, to have forgiveness of sins, to have eternal life with you forever. Jesus, you have paid it all. God, I pray as we study your word this morning, God, you would give us such a passion for the gospel. That we would want to not only um, live out in our lives, that not only would we hold on to it, God, so tightly, God, we have a desire to share that gospel with our loved ones, with our neighbors, with the lost in this city, Father. Lord, I want to pray for the kids in the back, God. Lord, as they learn about um, Jesus um, forgiving and commissioning Peter on the beach in Galilee, God, may they know, Jesus, that you are the one who leaves the 99 to go after the one, that you are the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. God, that you are faithful even when we are faithless, for you cannot deny yourself. Thank you, Lord. We have such a great God that we can trust in and who speaks to us through his word so clearly. Holy Spirit, I pray you would speak to each and every person here today. 
May we be changed by the word of God. We pray in your name. Amen. So again, Paul now in verses 6 to 10 this morning, we see he addresses the churches in Galatia. Now, normally when Paul writes a letter, um, no matter what circumstances the church is going through, he always finds an opportunity to give thanksgiving. You know, before he addresses the things they're doing wrong, before he like criticizes them and says, this is what you need to do right, before any correction is given, Paul always found the opportunity to remind his readers that he was thankful both for them and for the work that God was doing in them. We see this everywhere. We even see it in one of my favorite um, places, considering the context of the letter, is the book of Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says this. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Pretty sweet, eh? And if that's all you knew of the letter of 1 Corinthians, you thought maybe they're, they're pretty... Okay, church, they're a good, solid group of Christians, but Corinth was the most messed up church in the New Testament. You know, you can like sum up these books as, guys, stop doing stupid things. Please stop doing stupid things. Like Corinth, the Corinthians did a lot of really silly, ungodly things. And they had their fair share of problems. And yet, even despite all of that, Paul found the opportunity to show his appreciation and his thankfulness for these churches. Paul in Romans 10, 12, he says to us that we should um, show brotherly affection to each other and that we should outdo one another in showing honor. And Paul did that himself. And so he begins in verse 6 saying, I am amazed, I marvel. He says the word tumadzo in the ESV, it's I am astonished. Now this word is actually a positive word in the Greek. So like it's 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 Jesus, it says, was marveled, amazed, when he saw the fate of the centurion, that there was no one in Israel who had his kind of fate. Um, it's the kind of reaction the crowds had to Jesus when they saw his miracles and they heard him teaching. It's the word Paul uses in um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 to describe our reaction when we see Jesus returning for his church, that we're going to be amazed, that we will be in awe and wonder, astonished, at the return of, of Jesus. And so he says to them, I am astonished. And maybe at this point, the Galatians is thinking, well, all right, Paul, Paul is amazed at us. Paul is astonished by us. But that's when Paul just gives him this little bait and switch. And he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Ouch, Right? Like, straight for the throat. Like, he's not pulling any punches here. Paul takes this very positive phrase and he flips it on his head to drive home a point that something is not right in their midst, that there is a problem in this church. And so we ask, well, why would Paul, who always found a reason, found an excuse to show thankfulness for the churches, start off this letter in such a, a harsh tone and manner? Well, it's because Paul loved these people and Paul was gravely concerned about what was happening. 
He says they were very quickly, that is, they were, they were giving up without a fight. They were turning to a different gospel, he says in verse 6. Not that there is another one in verse 7, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So as we learned last Sunday, false teachers, again, were coming into the church. They were undermining both Paul and his message and teaching false doctrines. And Paul addresses it here. Notice he says three things in these verses. He says they are teaching a different gospel. He says it's a distortion, it's a perversion of the gospel. And number two, these people are only bringing you trouble and therefore not a blessing. Paul was concerned that they were forsaking the truth of the gospel and not just giving up the gospel for something of, say, like lesser value. But he was, they were giving up the gospel for a lie. And what's one of the best ways to know a lie? Well, it's to know the truth. If you know the truth of something, you're not going to fall for a lie. But on the flip side, how do you make someone believe a lie? You question, you make them doubt the truth. And we see that in Scripture. Is that not what Satan did to Eve in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say that to you? Like it's the oldest trick in the book. That's why when Jesus is facing, for instance, Satan in the wilderness during his temptation, he doesn't doubt the word of God. He uses the word of God against Satan. He speaks the truth and the liar flees and his lies flee with him. We have an example in Jesus of knowing the truth and the truth setting us free and not falling for a lie. Which leads us to a very natural question. If Paul is concerned that they are turning to a different gospel, well, the way to really counter that is to know, well, what's the real gospel? What's the true gospel? Well, we mentioned last week the gospel. The gospel in Greek simply means the good news. And one passage in particular in Scripture tells us very clearly what this good news is. If you want to flip there with me, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8, Paul lays out very clearly what the gospel is. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1 and 2, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So notice what Paul says here. He says that the good news is something every person must receive. It is something every person must stand in, that is, you know, stay close to, not, not withdraw from. And it is the good news by which we are, are saved. So if we are to be saved from our sin and the wrath of God, if we're to be forgiven, if we are to have eternal life with the Lord forever, we must know what the gospel is about and what we must do. So what must we do for all of this? Well, continue reading 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and he mentions how he appeared to 500 people, how he appeared to James, the Lord's brother, and how ultimately then he appeared to the apostle Paul. So tell me, what, what does 1 Corinthians 15 say we must do to be saved? What does the gospel say about us here? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You are not mentioned there. I am not mentioned there in something that has happened in the gospel. We're not mentioned at all, but who is mentioned? Jesus. 
Jesus is mentioned. Paul says Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Christ was, was buried. Christ was raised again. Christ appeared to the witnesses. Christ sent his disciples to the end of, ends of the earth. It's all about what Jesus has done. All we must do is what it says in verse 1 and 2, which is to receive it, to receive the wages for the work of Jesus. It's the free but very costly gift of God that he offers to each and every person on this planet, that we can experience the love of God, that we can know the forgiveness of God, that we can have peace with God, that we can be transformed from the inside out into the people of God, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. In the Gospel of John, Jesus on the cross in chapter 19, he cries out, Teleo, it is finished. And those words are true. It is absolutely finished. But the false teachers, they ask the question, is it? Is it though? Is it that simple? Is belief really enough? Why would a God who for over a thousand years has required his people to offer sacrifices, to obey the law, to, follow, to observe the Sabbath, to you know, partake in all these festivals, why would he just lay all that aside for Paul's gospel of simple faith in Jesus alone? Do you see what they're doing? They're coming and they're distorting the gospel of Christ. They are perverting it. And when you pervert something, obviously in you know, 21st century, the, the, the language of perversion and a pervert is usually a thing that's like sexual in nature. But to pervert something is to take something and take it off of its natural course and the natural direction it's meant to go and bring it to somewhere it was never intended to reach. You look, look at sex. Sex is something between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And what have, have we done? How have we perverted that? Sexual morality, pornography, all these different things. It's taking something good and bringing it somewhere it was never intended to go. And that's what they were doing to the gospel. They were taking the gospel, they were trying to add something to it, adding works, and bringing it somewhere the gospel was not meant to go. They, they, were, they were turning the gospel around. They did a 180 and they were going back to the things that had ceased back to the law, back to the Sabbath, back to the festivals, back to the, the sacrifices. And as we learned last week, all of these things were not meant to be the final destination. These things were meant to be a big sign pointing to Jesus. Paul says in Colossians, these things are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These false teachers, they want to bring the Galatians, and there are many false teachers today who want to bring you back to the shadows. And it's sinister, it's wrong. And I don't believe every like, Christian group that ends up this way means to start out this way. But it happens nonetheless. They end up like that. They start adding things to the gospel. You have to be baptized and believe to be a Christian. You, know, you, you can't eat certain foods if you want to be in a right relationship with God. You, know, you have to speak in tongues if you want to be saved. You have to go to do penance if you want to be saved. You have to do X, Y, and Z with faith in Jesus for salvation, and it's wrong. We're not justified by our works. The scripture makes it so clear. Our works, when it comes to like trying to earn a favor with God, Isaiah says they're filthy, they're filthy rags. And so it's the distortion of the gospel. And Paul says those who bring it to you are trying to bring you trouble. They're not bringing you a blessing. They are bringing you a curse. And the reason for this, it's back in verse 6. Notice what he says there in verse 6. 
When we turn from the gospel, when we turn from the truth of God's word, we start holding on to something else, whether it's a different belief or a system, anything else. When it goes from simple faith in Jesus, we are not deserting a theological opinion. Paul says we are deserting a person. He says you are deserting not my gospel. He says you are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. The problem with the Galatians was they weren't just you know, abandoning a certain theological opinion. Paul says they were giving up and walking away from the Lord, the one who called them into the grace of Christ. They were turning their back on Jesus and walking away. And if that's the case, can you see why Paul is so upset? Why he's so angry in this letter? and Why he just gives him this sucker punch at the very start? They're, they're in danger. They are in danger of walking away from, from Christ. And that danger, again, is very present today. There will be groups today who will tell you, you need to do something else, bar believe in Jesus to be saved. We need to be ready. We need to be on guard. We need to be able to protect those in the faith, our brothers and sisters who are maybe weaker than us in the faith, from wandering off into something that's going to only be, be trouble. So there's a danger of deserting Christ. And I don't say that to like make us doubt like, you know, our salvation. I am more of a, like a once saved, always saved person than a you can lose your salvation person. Because if I could lose my salvation, I would definitely lose my salvation. And you would too, because we are, we are sinners. But, you know, we have to ask the question, if we are, if we are, not abiding in Christ, if we actively choose to walk away from Jesus and at the end of our days we reject the gospel after once proclaiming it, like how can there be any security if you're not finding your security in Christ? There's only trouble when we walk away from the gospel. And again, the, the, the enemy, the devil, has many people captive proclaiming a false message. And so we need to be on guard. We need to know the truth. We need to be able to say, yes, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, faith in, him enough, faith in him is enough. And then be able to give a reason why. So there is a very clear warning in this passage to not desert and give up on Jesus. But if that's not enough, there's actually more. You see, when, when we hold fast to Jesus, when we simply just believe in the gospel, when we rest in the work of Jesus, it's not just, as we said last week, like a ticket out of hell. It's not just avoiding the curse of an eternity of separation from God. When we believe the gospel, we receive the blessing of intimacy with our Lord. We get to know Jesus today. We get to grow in him today. And we get to become the people God wants us to be today. We get to grow and bear fruit. And Paul mentions all the fruit that we can bear as Christians when we abide in the gospel and abide in Jesus at the end of Galatians chapter 6. But I want to turn, if we can, just to the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, on Jesus' final night before he is crucified, where he's meeting with his friends, he says these words to him in John 15, 1 to 9. He says, I am true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. When we abide in Christ, so on the flip side, when we desert Christ, Paul says there is only trouble. There's not a blessing, but if we abide in Christ, if we stay with Jesus, he says we are truly blessed because we're abiding in his love and we become the people God desires us to be, people that bring him honor and glory and delight, people that do his will, people that are his ambassadors. But again, to walk away, to receive a different gospel is only to bring trouble upon yourself. But Paul also says here, it doesn't just bring trouble on you for hearing it. It brings trouble, he says, on those who proclaim it. In verses 8 and 9, he says this. He says, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Those are some pretty harsh words from the Apostle Paul. And Paul wouldn't be accused of being a very tolerant uh, person, would he? But that's just how important the truth of the gospel was to him. He holds it in such high regard, in fact, he holds it above his, his personhood. He says, you know, even if I should come to you and teach a different gospel than the one that you received and were saved by, or even if an angel comes down from heaven and tells you there is another gospel, he says this gospel must be rejected. And how can Paul say this? Well, it's because the gospel doesn't come from men, and the gospel doesn't come from angels. The gospel comes from God. Paul says this himself in Galatians 1. He says, I would have you know that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from man. I was not taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And because the gospel comes from the Lord, because it is the word of the Lord, it does not change. And because the word of God does not change, those who come and say to you they have a, a further revelation from God that supersedes what already has come, that must be rejected outright. Even if the most influential pastor or theologian or leader or anyone in the Christian church brings a message by our faith in Christ, it must be rejected. Even if an angel appears to them, they say. Even if they tell them, well, the Lord told me this. It has to be rejected. Like it, it's, 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 it's really frustrating when you see people like believing this kind of stuff. When you hear people say, God led me to do something, or the Holy Spirit said this to me, or this person prophesied over my life, or this person gave me a word of knowledge, and what they have received is just contrary to the word of God. Like it makes no sense. It's, it's foolish. Um, it actually dishonors the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge that the Holy Spirit gives. 
it puts people in danger and it dishonors God because we are rejecting his word and saying it's okay to have something else. And yet these people were doing the exact same thing. He says, you know, they were doing it. And he says, if I was to do it, it's not okay. Or even if an angel was to do it, it's not okay. And, you know, I, I, I can't help but wonder, like, was Paul being somewhat prophetic when he wrote those words? Like, what are the chances that an angel appears to you and gives you another gospel or further revelation? But you look at, like, the origins of Islam, that's the claim. You look at Mormonism specifically, that is the claim. That's how it started. Joseph Smith said an angel appeared to him and told him, like, I, I actually read it, he, he's, Joseph Smith said that as he was calling upon the name of God, this angel appears in this room. And he said, he called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me, and his name was Moroni. And Joseph Smith, in his writings, I don't recommend you waste your time reading them. I, I, I'll do that work for you. But he says, this angel tells him there is this book deposited, written upon gold and plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent, the continent of you know, North America, and the source from whence they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it, as delivered by the Savior to the ancient inhabitants. So Mormons believe this angel of light appeared to this very deceived man and tells him to go find the full gospel, because there wasn't, there wasn't enough already for the last like 1,800 years. What's really wrong is Mormonism started shortly after the Great Second Awakening in the States, where like, lots of people were coming to know Jesus from the proclamation of the gospel. And yet, people have wandered from the word of God, and you look at the impact today. And like, when you see the impact of this cult, and the false gospel they bring to the church, and the deception, and the, 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 the eternities of people who are being ruined by their lives, the words of 2 Corinthians 11 comes to mind. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so Paul can say, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And he repeats that in verse 9 just to really drive that home. Let him be accursed. Let him be cut off. Let him be excommunicated. Let him be damned, is what that means. And again, those are strong words by the Apostle Paul. Dude, the only time I ever got like told off by my pastors when I was younger in the faith was I said the word, that word in a very kind of disrespectful manner. Yet Paul uses the word anatema, damned, in a very serious tone here. And it needs to be recognized. And we might ask, well, where is, like, why is, how can Paul be so strong? You know, in a world that says, you know, we need to love others, and, you know, when the world has this perception of what Christian love is meant to be, you know, you might ask questions, where is Paul's love in all this? Where is Paul's love uh, for these people? He calls down a double curse upon them. It's not enough that he asks God to curse the message. He says, God cursed the people who were preaching this message. So where is Paul's love? And I love um, David Guzik. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor and a commentator. He has a really good commentary on Galatians. You can get it for free online. And he says this, where was Paul's love? Paul's love was for souls that were in danger of hell. 
If a gospel is false and not another good news at all, then it cannot save the lost. Paul looked at this false, perverted gospel and said, that is a rescue ship about to sink. It cannot save anyone. I want to do everything right before God to warn people away from the wrong rescue ship. See, for Paul to love, quote, quote, love these people by tolerating them would have been to not love the churches in Galatia who were being deceived by them. Like when it comes to false teachers and false teaching in our lives and the lives of our family, in our church, of those that God has placed under your authority, under your influence, um, for us to, you know, to love these people is to not love those who are being deceived. And so there's only one course of action to false teaching. You show that teaching and that teacher the door. There's no toleration in the biblical faith for false teaching in the church. Doesn't mean you don't love the person. That you don't, doesn't mean you don't call them to repentance and offer the gospel to them. But if they don't repent, the scripture says, do not tolerate their words. And the Apostle John, he makes this very clear in his second epistle. Um, second John is a tiny little letter in the back of your Bibles. And there, John, he's encouraging the church to keep walking in the truth of God's word and to keep obeying him, to, to love God and to love people, you know, the essence of her faith and what we must do, love our Lord Jesus Christ and love those in this world. But at the very end of it, he tells them, here's what you do with those who are leading people astray. He says in 2 John 1, 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not con confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Anyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. The apostle makes it very clear we do not receive false teaching into our life. We expose it for what it is and leave the rest up to God. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, Luke rather, that temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone was hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. There Jesus is speaking of the fate of every person who tempts people to sin and just destroy that relationship with the Lord and the sin of deception of leading people away from the gospel is surely included in there. And so guys, false teaching will come your way. If you have not been exposed to false teaching, at some point you will be exposed to false teaching and you shouldn't be disheartened by it. You shouldn't be shocked by it. Like how, how could God let false teaching come into the church? There will always be those who will tempt us to sin to reject the truth. And the Lord We'll deal with them. Jesus will deal with them. We just simply have to know the truth, reject the lie, not allow liars to have an influence in how we think and how we view the Lord and how we live for the Lord. And we just walk instead in the truth. And once again, the truth is found in this book. If your faith, if your relationship with God is being found in what this book says, you will not be deceived. You will know the truth. You will walk in the truth. You will not believe a lie. And more than that, God will use you to protect other people from walking away from the truth as well. And that should be a desire all of us have. But here's the thing. What, what, like, if you want to live a Christian life where you are exposing 
the wicked deeds of darkness, where you were calling out false teaching and you're encouraging people to come back to the truth, you won't always be popular for that. Like how many people, when you tell them, you know, you're wrong about this, they go, oh wow, thank you for telling me how wrong I am. I really, really appreciate that. I'm gonna stop being wrong and stop telling people the wrong thing. It, it doesn't always happen. When we tell people the truth, especially the truth of the gospel, to those who are being deceived and to those who are deceiving, there will be hostility. And we need to be prepared for that. The apostle Paul certainly was. He went around preaching the gospel and these Judaizers came and were just giving him nothing but trouble. But Paul, we see, he does not back down because his aim in life was not to please men, but to please God. And we see that in our final verse this morning, verse 10. It says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so the big idea here, and the big idea that brings this message to a close, is that we must hold fast to the gospel, we must not compromise on the gospel, we, and we must proclaim the truth of the gospel, because what should matter most to us is that when we come to the end of our days, shouldn't be, did I please people, but rather, did I live a life that was pleasing to God? And when it comes to the Lord and pleasing the Lord, there can be no people pleasing. Again, Paul has said a lot of things that would not have given him the approval of man. He calls out the Galatians for embracing false teaching. He calls out the false teachers and proclaims a curse upon them. And so he asks them the question, does it look like I want your approval? Does it look like I want the approval of man or the approval of God? And I think the answer is very clear. Again, we have this contrast through Galatians between the, the Judaizers and Paul. They would have said Paul was trying to please man. Because, you know, he's just giving you an easy gospel. You don't have to get circumcised, lads. You don't have to give up your food, folks. You, can, you don't have to become a Jew. You know, that's people-pleasing, isn't it? An easy gospel. But Paul would say he's trying to please God because he is preaching a gospel where God gets the glory for doing all the work. Whereas they would have proclaimed that, well, we're actually pleasing God because we're making you Jews. And doesn't God want you to observe the Sabbath and to do all these good things? But Paul tells us at the end of Galatians, they were doing the opposite. They weren't doing this to please God. They were doing it to please man. They wanted the approval of the Jews back home because they were getting in trouble for the cross of Christ. Paul says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would force you to be circumcised. And it only in that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even they who are circumcised do not keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul is saying that these teachers were people pleasers. They circumcised you, Galatians, so that the Jews at home wouldn't give them trouble. Paul proved, though, doesn't he, through his life, that he is something different. Not just, again, his words, but his life. Paul tells us in Philippians 3 that he had the greatest credentials he could really have as a Jew. Like if Paul stayed a Jew, he would have had a very successful and comfortable and pleasurable life. But Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, whatever gain I had, everything I had as a Jew, I count as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, for Paul, being a servant of Christ was far more, worth, more, more worthwhile 
and having the approval of man. That's why he says in Galatians 6, far be it for me that I shall boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. See, to Paul, Jesus plus nothing meant everything, and that was enough for him. And so I suppose the question is, as we close, is that, is that enough for us? Are we ready to count everything as loss for the sake of knowing him? Or is there still that temptation to, to people, please? I, I spent a lot of my life trying to please people and compromising who I was to get the approval and the kindness of others. And none of those people are in my life today. People pleasing did not keep them around in the very end. They're, they're, all, they're all gone. It's not worth it. People pleasing is not worth it. But what is worth it is this knowing Christ, knowing Jesus, knowing intimacy with the one who died for your sins, who has given you eternal life, who's coming back so that we may be with him forever, and who, at the end of the day, when all the people that we try to please and the people we don't want to please are gone, at the end of the day, it'll be him saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So my encouragement for us today is that we will be a people who want to hear those words at the end of the day. Not well done from the crowds, not well done from those who don't really care about us, but well done from Jesus himself. So we're going to go into a time of worship as we do so, and the elements of the communion are in the back. If you are a Christian, I would encourage you to be obedient to the scriptures, obey Jesus as often as you are together. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. Take the bread, take the cup, um, honor the Lord through the sacrament of communion. And obviously, if you need prayer for anything at all, um, I will be in the back. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for the gospel. We thank you, Jesus, that there is no other way by you. Thank you, Lord, um, for the example of the Apostle Paul. Lord, that he lived a life. God, we're here for ready, ready to forsake everything, Lord, for the sake of knowing you. And Lord, I want that to be the desire and the rhythm of my life. And I want that, Lord, for every person in this room today. God, would you transform us, Lord, to a people who are passionate about you above all else, Lord. God, in every situation we come across, help us to remember that you are there. And God, pleasing you should be of far more importance than pleasing man. So God, help us to never give an easy gospel where we can say it's, you can do something else. Help us to never give a false gospel where we say Jesus isn't enough. Lord, give us boldness to proclaim the truth and to love the truth, to love the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation, Lord. And we have received that because we trusted in you. May we never, Lord, put a burden, bar the gospel on someone else. Lord, as we worship you this morning, would you change us, Holy Spirit, by your grace? Would you make us a people who bear fruits, lives that are pleasing to our Father? May we go from this place, Lord, into, into the city and into our homes, ready to glorify you. In this true Jesus' name we pray. Amen.